Leo Shea-Becker, I'm with the Kansas Reflector, and today I'm here with young Kansas House of Representative Democrats who are running unopposed in the 2022 election. This year's election is unique in the sense that 55 out of the 125 House seats have already been decided because only one candidate filed to run for the seat in those districts. Of those 55 seats running unopposed, we have three of them with us here today. We have representatives Christina Haswood of District 10, Brandon Woodard of District 30, and Rishu of District 25. I wanted to interview them about what it's like being a young Democrat representative in Kansas, what they expect of their next terms, and their opinions on a few prevalent issues in Kansas. So let's get started. What is it like being a young Democrat representative in Kansas? And we can start with you, Representative Shu. I think it takes a certain level of blind, maybe sometimes dumb optimism to, to, to be doing it. I think every single day we come in knowing what the vote count is. I make the joke that it's coming in every day and it's like you're playing Alabama. You're at a severe disadvantage and you're going to lose more often than you're not. But um, I, I think young people deserve to, to have other young people as voices in the state house, which I think we all do here quite well um, and, and with honor. Um, but yeah, like, like Christina said, it's about taking care of yourself. Um, while losing all the time. It's not easy on, on um, the emotional psyche um, to, to, to lose that often and on important issues as well, but uh, we're, we're never going to back down from the fight. Yeah, uh, I would say that, you know, it's every day we're walking into the building with uh, your, your toolkit or your arms, but you're walking into a, a, a gunfight with a pocket knife. Um, so you have to look at how to be creative, how to make sure that your voice is being heard. Um, as we look at the makeup of the legislature, it's traditionally much older. People are retired or independently wealthy. And so not only are we there to represent our districts, but also to bring issues to light that our uh, young people are, are facing every day. Uh, we hear from people that the cost of education, you know, we hear from some of our colleagues that say, why are people complaining about student debt? I worked a job on my farm over the summer and paid for college when I grew up. Well, now you can't do that, right? You could work three part-time jobs and still barely be able to afford your rent for college. And so things have changed and I feel like our responsibility is to bring up uh, issues to the forefront that are important to young people. For me, um, since I'm completing my first term and I feel a little less beat up with battle wounds from the legislature than my colleagues here today, um, I just feel like I am a bit naive in a good and bad way. I'm very optimistic. Um, I've always have and try to stay a positive attitude. And I feel like that also kind of creates me to be a little bit numb to the issues. I'm like, oh no, that's okay. We'll get out there and canvas. Um, but then you're just like, when you're at home at night by yourself or driving in the car, <laughs> and you're just like, these issues are a lot bigger. And I think being a new freshman legislature, there's all these big issues that, that we want to tackle. And then you get in there and you're one of 125 and you're up a super majority and just seeing how the political handbook of the national level just creeps into Kansas and just toxifies the political environment where making policy for the everyday person doesn't become a priority. It's very, very frustrating. Um, but also, like, you know, what Representative Woodard and uh, Shu said, that it's quite difficult, especially with the salary, um, even for me, I've been living off my savings for the past two months, and everyone's like, oh my god, you're at this event and this event. I'm like, yeah, because I'm unemployed, and I probably don't start work till next month. So that's why, and I have no kids too, so I just have to take care of myself. So it's, it's definitely a lot of time commitment. Mm -hmm. I think one additional thing that's unique about the three of us on, on this podcast as well is that 
all three of us represent kind of a different minority group. And so not only do we represent our districts, not only do we represent young Cantons, but I, I feel like I represent every Asian American in the state, and I'm, as I'm sure they feel like they represent uh, gay Cantons or, or tribal Cantons as well. So that's an additional responsibility as well. Like all of these things just kind of add up in terms of, you know, what you feel like you can keep upon yourself, um, but also the time commitment to, to, to represent those things adequately as well. Yeah, and um, you had kind of mentioned some unexpected aspects of running unopposed compared to running opposed. Um, what differs about campaigning running unopposed rather than opposed, and is it easier or harder? Yeah, I do want to acknowledge that this is a, a privileged point of view. I'm very lucky and fortunate to be running unopposed, um, but from a kind of an intellectual standpoint, when you have an opponent, um, the, the goal is very clear. You know, it's just a math game. There's 23,000 voters in your district. If you have 70% turnout, then you just have to turn out 50% plus one, right? And then you go out and target the 50% the, the plus one that is most likely to vote for you. And then you just go out and get them. Um, so, so even though the physical labor of that is difficult, the, the kind of intellectual labor of it is not as much. You're just executing on a strategy every single day. Um, when you're unopposed, there's a lot more options, right? Like, like if you don't have that, that vote count to target, there's other goals you can have, such as defeating a constitutional amendment or helping out the governor or Representative Davids. Um, but every single day, there's just a lot more choices. And it, it's for me, it's a lot more difficult to, to properly prioritize every single day versus having an opponent where it's just very obvious what the goal is every single day. So for me, I'm still learning how to be unopposed. Um, I <laughs> had a very competitive primary in 2018, a very competitive general in 2018, and an even more competitive general in 2020. So it's kind of surprising to not have an opponent this year. Um, and you know, I'm used to, it's door knocking time, right? We're talking to as many people as we can. We're still doing that. Um, but also looking at how do I do that to make sure I'm turning out the people from my district so, who are used to us dragging them out of their apartment building to make sure that they're going out to vote. Um, so making sure we're doing that to turn out the votes against the constitutional amendment, make sure that people are voting for Representative Davids to reelect her, making sure they're voting to reelect Governor Kelly, um, but also being able to help other people, right? Now we've got several of our, our freshmen that are being targets, and I, I've certainly been there. So not only being that emotional support to them, because I know what it's like to have very mean things said about you on campaign mailers and uh, on digital ads and things like that, uh, but just making sure they're focused, laser focused on talking to as many voters as they can, uh, having as much direct voter contact, because that's what it's going to take to get them back. Uh, so still learning how to be unopposed, but in the meantime, it's uh, uh, somewhat a, a breath of fresh air and a sigh of relief that I get to come back for two more years. When I first ran, I was in a three-way Democratic primary, um, and I'm from Lawrence, so the climate is definitely different than Johnson County area. And um, running unopposed, is a relief, selfishly, but in the bigger scheme of things, a bit discouraging just because we don't have folks who maybe feel like they aren't good enough to run for office or, you know, just, I think... Or, or can't afford to. Can't afford to. It's really hard, even, you know, down to the website is such a daunting task for folks who want to run for office. It costs a lot of money, um, but it's... Um, I think the big thing that we're all going to be suffering in our districts is voter turnout, just because there's not that drama in the media, there's not that action happening. Um, so what I did this summer is I have about a team of nine, including myself, folks, 
and five summer interns um, ranging from the age of 17 to 20, 21. And our biggest thing is to get the voter turnout to vote no on August 2nd um, and to educate my district. So focusing on my district is also helping Kansas for Constitutional Freedom, my local uh, Democratic Party and our state Democratic Party. And I have folks who are so motivated, so energetic in politics, but feel very defeated by the party system. Um, and I definitely feel that as well. So we're just kind of doing our thing and taking care of my constituents. Um, and my district is unique in itself in Lawrence, where the voter turnout and voter registration is fairly low. So um, grassroots and just talking to folks. And plus, I ran during a pandemic, too. So <laughs> it's really nice to do things in person and to kind of do things stress-free. If you're in IT, I always tell my interns, like, this is the sandbox. You know, we can try new strategies. We can learn new strategies. Um, and then you guys can go out into the world. And they end up working on campaigns from California to Boston. Um, and then try these out and then come back, hopefully come back <laughs> when you're done with your higher education and, um, you know, come back to Kansas. And that's kind of what I think our collective goal is, a bipartisanship goal as well. And... Um how do you feel your constituents can hold you accountable since you are at a post? I think it's kind of a chicken or the egg question. I, I think all of us um, are unopposed because we are so responsive to constituents in the first place, right? And then I, I answer every single personal email that I get back or phone call. And so I, I think because that constituents are feeling like they're heard, um, to extent, the large extent, I think that's why um, even Republicans, I think all of us get a lot of crossover Republican votes as well, is because we're responsive to them. Um, obviously, it, it's frustrating a lot of times hearing um, from from representatives who maybe don't respond to emails or phone calls because that's like the literal baseline of this job, right? <laughs> and 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 uh, you know, there, there's lots of um, people on both sides of the aisle who do a great job of doing that and lots of people on both sides who don't um and then it just that, that that's the number one way and if people are feeling like they're not heard and they're not being responded to that's when you do end up running uh, opponents mm -hmm. i would say that um answering emails is definitely like the base minimum of our job to do um but i definitely learned like work life balance as well like i'm not going to answer an email from florida mm -hmm. uh you're not my constituent and i'm always in the back of my head, like, I was elected by the constituents of House District 10. I make policies that do impact our state and other surrounding districts. Um, but those are the folks who graciously put their trust in me and the only reason I had this job. Um, and I think answering the emails, answering phone, our phone calls, um, I do have a number that they could text me at. I'm very accessible and I try to be as successful as much as I can. I have like four different social medias with direct messages all open and available. Um, I do interviews all the way from Singapore to Western Kansas for students um, who are interested in Kansas politics. And I feel like I am very accessible in that way. But again, it doesn't, you're just scraping the surface when you're waiting for people to approach you. So that's why I'm so excited this summer to have a team of field and to get to door knocking, to get back to phone calling. Um, and to create that connection again. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that surprised me the most is that folks who are so adamantly opposed to my position on so many issues are still the ones that will show up to every town hall. Uh, maybe it's the free coffee and donuts, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, but they're willing to have that discussion. They 
I, I feel I res- feel like I had some of my faith in, in politics restored when some of the most adamant pro-life constituents have reached out, have come to my town halls and said, I don't agree with you on this issue, but you listened to me. You called me back. Um, and, you know, the ones that are not as polite in their responses, um, I've always said, you know, you can you can drive to Topeka and pay $120 and run against me if you, you don't share my position on this issues. Anyone can run. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes they've said, well, no, you're everywhere. And I think to Christina's point, being present um, is just the part of the job. As Ree said, the baseline is responding to people. That's our job. That's why I ran. Mm-hmm. My representative wouldn't return my phone calls, would not return my emails, didn't host town halls. I would come to Topeka to try to meet with him. And if he was actually here, which was not the case 40% of the time, missed 40% of his votes, he would cancel a meeting. So I'd have to bird dog outside of a committee room to try to catch him to get my position on the issue heard. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Our job is to listen to anyone, regardless of if they voted or not. Mm-hmm. We can all go out and campaign and try to earn votes. But the day we are sworn in, we represent all 23,000 people in our district, not just the ones who voted for us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and speaking of listening, um, I was looking at your Twitter representative shoe and I saw that you, well, you just said you take it personally to respond to everyone. And I saw a Twitter thread where you were kind of discussing with a Twitter user that was kind of disagreeing with what, um, with a, um, house bill 2237, which you had tweeted last week that you were there to, um, join governor Laura Kelly in a ceremonial signing of that bill, which you said is a housing bundle aimed at creating more housing supply and driving down prices. Um, a lot of this bill has to do with rural housing development. How will this bill affect more urban areas such as your district? Yeah, so there's several components in the bill. So there is an urban component where um, now economically distressed urban areas could uh, get access to a tax credit that was previously only available in rural areas. So that's one part of it. And then there is um, low-income housing tax credits available as well. And so that'll be more relevant in in the urban areas. But Overall, I, I think the goal is to, to look at the whole system here in Kansas. And then I think in rural and urban Kansas, we see a housing crisis uh, for different reasons, but in both areas, that's true. And so the goal of this bill was to kind of balance out the supply of housing, um, which has far uh, lagged the housing demand, especially in Johnson County um, and then where we're from. And so if you have seniors who are, are struggling to stay in their homes because of rising property costs, or if you have young people like us um, who are, are looking to buy a house and are being priced out of the market, hopefully, ideally, long-term, increasing the housing supply will balance that out a little bit. Um, and so that's kind of been the goal of it. It's, it was a really exciting thing uh, to, to work on the, this session. You know, I, I think I'm pretty famous for saying in the legislature that there's really only like three things that we do a year that actually matter. Everything is else just kind of like small stuff or infighting. Um, I think addressing the housing crisis is a big issue. I, I think um, all of us have an interest in keeping young people here. Um, if there's not enough houses, that, that that kind of makes the decision for them, right? If they're having to look at $400,000 for a two-bed, one-bath house in Johnson County, that makes it pretty difficult. And mm-hmm. so if we're able to solve that problem, um, it's kind of a if you build it, they will come kind of situation. Yeah, and... Um, kind of like a declining population in Kansas is a big problem that a lot of politicians are looking at. Even Attorney General Derek Schmidt brought it up, the need to keep Kansans here while following to run as governor, and it's a big focus of his campaign. Um, Representative Haswood, why do you think so many Kansans are leaving in addition to housing issues possibly? As a representative, like how can you help keep Kansas, 
families here in Kansas. Definitely the policies that get passed, the anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ plus um, policies are really driving out folks, not only that as a human issue, but as an economic issue as well, Mm -hmm. um, where just so much hate and just this rhetoric is just really toxifying the state of Kansas. Um, I think we all were working on a $15 minimum wage and I have folks, I just met with my paraeducation folks back at USD 497 at their union and they were just talking about like, you know, we're trying to do increase for our pay, but there's only so much that we can do at our local school board level and it's up to you at the state level and, you know, there's, I'm not on any education committees. That's probably another issue that, you know, we love to have the time and resources to be at all these different education um, committee meetings, but there's only so many uh, minutes in the day. Mm -hmm. And I think young folks too, I think housing is such a big one. And I think for me being 28, I just graduated grad school about two years ago. I'm in a very similar, I'm like living the issues that I'm trying to solve. And, um, you know, it's, I always try to take that to the Capitol. Um, And I think when I get into these more elderly stages in my life, like thinking about childcare. Mm-hmm. That's such a big thing right now, and especially with me being an indigenous person who gets healthcare at Indian Health Services and the, you know, risk of birth control being taken away. Mm-hmm. It's just really scary mm-hmm. times right now. And um, just childcare too. I see mm-hmm. my colleagues with kids. Um, you know, it's not an easy thing. Like, there's not even a daycare at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Um, just the bare minimums of things that keep a normal job and are, you know, the pay. And I think everyone's pay right now. And um, things are just really tough right now. And just trying to create policies, um, not only to get to the root issues, it's very, very difficult, but just to try and address the issues that we're facing now. Yeah. And you had mentioned some anti-LGBTQ plus policies here in Kansas, and some Kansans may not be aware that in 2015, previous Kansas Governor Sam Brownback issued an executive order that removed discrimination protections for LGBTQ state employees. Um, Representative Woodward, um, on your website, you says you say that um, we need to implement a statewide anti-discriminatory act. Um, it has been since 2015 since that executive order was put in place. Um, Why is it that an anti-discriminatory act has yet to be passed in Kansas? And um, are you planning on focusing on working towards this in your next term? Yeah, so after getting elected in 2018, uh, Representative Susan Ruiz and I led the uh, push for implementing the modernization of our Kansas Act Against Discrimination to add LGBTQ Kansans to the list of protections that every other Kansan uh, enjoys. And at the time that it had been introduced, granted it was early in the session, it was one of the uh, bills that had the most bipartisan co-sponsors out of any bill in the legislative session. Um, In Kansas, a lot of people don't realize that it is still legal to be fired, denied housing, or refuse business because of who you are or who you love. Um, Some of that has been slightly resolved with employment discrimination at the uh, Supreme Court level, but given the events of the last week, we cannot take any of that for granted. So we do need to codify this, these protections in Kansas to make sure, uh, to Christina's point, that people know that they're welcome here, mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that they are, can uh, 
we can prevent them from being fired for getting married on Sunday and coming into work and being fired because of who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to make sure that trans people are not being denied at the lunch counter or refuse business because of who they are. Mm-hmm. And so I think we've got to look at that. But we also have to look at other LGBT policy to make sure that this is a place that's safe for people. Mm-hmm. I have to swear an oath every time I'm elected to a constitution that says I can't get married. Luckily, that's been overturned, but how long is that going to last, right? We have a Supreme Court justice who says that marriage equality is next, or we have a outdated statute on the book that criminalizes homosexuality, right? We've got to modernize our Kansas statutes to make sure that all are welcome here, not just to make sure that they can work and live here and spend their hard-earned money here, mm-hmm. but that we're not criminalizing their very existence for who they are. Mm-hmm. To, to put a fine point to end this, what drives me crazy being in the Kansas legislature is the hypocrisy that we always hear where legislators are like, why are young people leaving Kansas? And mm-hmm. then all of us say regressive politics, and then they just ignore it and then continue their attack. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, regre- and continue their, their regressive politics. I, I cannot emphasize enough Please listen to us if you're a legislator, and especially in leadership. It's regressive politics that is causing young people to, to leave Kansas. It is the anti-trans bill. Um, it is if abortion uh, is not codified and protected here in Kansas, that will lead to young people leaving it. I, Kirsch and I, we have one child. Where we're in the conversations on like if we want to or not. If abortion rights aren't protected, we will not feel safe becoming pregnant here in Kansas, and certainly not in Missouri, where right now conversations are having, uh, being had in Missouri where um, they're needing to see like signs of, of actual failure before treating an ectopic pregnancy. That, that puts mother's lives in danger. I, I'm not going to ask Kirsha to put her life in danger um, for that. And, and so the continuance of, of these attacks um, are going to lead to even more young people leaving it. So either stop pretending like like you care why young people are leaving Kansas, um, or actually listen to us and help us address it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Representative Shu, on your website it says you, as a proud naturalized immigrant, know how xenophobic and regressive policies hold our country back. Just kind of like you were just saying now, um, with the passage of House Bill 2717 in late April of this year, which prohibits municipalities from restricting their law enforcement agencies from complying with federal authorities concerning information about someone's citizenship or immigration status. Many Kansas Democrats and some residents felt betrayed by Governor Laura Kelly for signing that bill. How did you feel about the governor's willingness to sign that bill rather than veto it? I think the unfortunate part about being a Democrat in Kansas, and especially being the Democratic governor in Kansas, is that you are put in no-win positions by a supermajority Republican legislature. Mm -hmm. Um, I am not happy that this bill is law. Um, I I wish there was an alternative, but the the way that electoral politics works in this state is that... um, she got put into, uh, quite frankly, a no-win situation. So, mm-hmm. um, not, you know, that's not to make excuses or, or anything like that, but that, that, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, I, I think in, in retrospect, um, if I were to strategize, you know, all the safe and welcoming ordinances, um, I would suggest uh, not passing them while the legislature is in session during a gubernatorial election year. Um, if this would have happened in May or June, then we wouldn't be in session for the legislature to take action on it. Um, but all of that is our, that, that's stuff that I learned after the fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And um, kind of like a big topic right now is Supreme Court rulings. Um, several years ago, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that, Can that the Kansas Constitution guarantees Kansans the right to an abortion. Um, this year on the ballot for August 2nd, there is an abortion constitutional amendment that if passed, a new amendment would be added to the Kansas Constitution, making it so that Kansans are not guaranteed the right to an abortion. Kansas is the first state with a referendum uh, after the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Representative Haswood, um, I've seen that you've been very upfront about your stance on abortion, the abortion constitutional amendment. Um, for you and your constituents, why are you asking people to vote no? I'm pissed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, we knew it was coming, and we didn't know when. Um, and it's just frustrating to see, um, you know, Roe v. Wade being here since... I was born, I'm 28, mm -hmm. and just the risk that it won't be here for the Gen Z, for future generations to come, and, it, you know, it's not going to stop abortions, only mm -hmm. safe abortions, and thinking about my indigenous folks, we have one of the highest rates of maternal mortality, morbidity, preeclampsia, you know, we can go down the list on all that, mm -hmm. and um, just our unique situation with Indian Health Services, um, with the Hyde Amendment that passed mm -hmm. in Congress, we've always never had a right to an abortion. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, growing up with a choice was just so empowering. And I don't think I would be successful or be here in my position today without that comfort of a choice mm -hmm. um, given to me. And it's, you know, I asked my mom, how did indigenous peoples handle family planning? And, you know, in indigenous cultures, uh, cultures around the world, this is kind of a taboo topic. And, uh, you know, it's in our creation stories on sex education and reproductive. And, you know, they don't really tell you that part, but they tell you point A to point B, but not how to get there. And that's really from colonization and mm -hmm. that these stories and teachings um, were not appropriate when mm -hmm. colonization came over and started sexualizing indigenous folks. So seeing that in that perspective that we always had family planning, we had herbal medicines um, for abortion, for um, family planning care, and just to see where we are today, um, it's just really disheartening and just the ongoing of colonizations happening. And it's... it's uh, really frustrating to see. And, you know, for me, I'm just so lucky to have my summer interns who are all as angry as I am. And we are getting out to canvassing. We are talking to voters and we are training folks who want to volunteer uh, and make this voter engagement because that is what the other side is doing. And they've been doing it for since Roe v. Wade was, was in place. Mm -hmm. So now we have to help uh, folks, um, you know, have voting plans, and we are very cautious with that as well with the new bill of a risk of a felony if you are mistaken as an elected official, mm -hmm. election official. And a lot of my interns are people of color, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to put them in danger, and I'm not going to put myself in danger because we all have a lot to lose. Mm -hmm. So we take that very, very seriously. Yeah. And speaking of Supreme Court rulings that affect indigenous lives, um, yesterday there was uh, they ruled that non-natives can now be um, 
tried, like oh, the state of Oklahoma can now try non-natives when the victim is native and it was on tribal land. Um, I spoke with a few of my friends um, and a lot of them didn't even know tribal courts were a thing. So I think it's important to kind of talk about that. Um, how, does, how does that ruling affect indigenous lives? I think to your point too, that um, being one of very few indigenous people in Kansas and tackling federal policy as well as state policy as well as tribal policy um, is is I have my arms like I'm a little squid <laughs> tentacles everywhere and just trying to keep up and constantly I mean we haven't even gotten to like for my office we had one office assistant for four people and they don't get paid anything really they don't even get health care insurance they don't even get retirement plans um, and they ended up quitting like a quarter three-fourths away of the session mm-hmm. so you know it's there was an attack on tribal sovereignty. And if I probably ask all my 125 colleagues about tribal sovereignty, they'll be like, what's that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am very patient with them, and I'm very glad that they feel comfortable asking me all their um, questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we are in t- dealing with indigenous bills, very lucky to have now be on Fed and State now so I can have a more hands-on impact with indigenous bills because there's been a couple times where it's, you know, about to go to the Senate or it's about to go to the governor's office and it's like, whoa, 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 we didn't catch that. And there's been a good handful of times where I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, I'm doing this without an Indian law degree too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's really nice to just, you know, if we can catch it early is great. Um, But now I think we have one indigenous candidate and two out of the three, including me, the other two are not seeking re-election, so I think I might be joining Ree's caucus mm-hmm. <laughs> of one mm-hmm. pretty soon. Great, yeah. And um, I think my last question, direct question here, is for you, Representative Woodard. Um, all of you, but all of you have listed public education as one of your focuses, so if you feel the need to chime in, go ahead. Um, the other intern here at The Reflector, Margaret, covered the teacher shortage in Kansas with some pretty stark, t- stark statistics um, in a survey from the National Education Association 55% of teachers indicated that they are ready to leave the classroom. Here in Kansas, there are 1,381 teacher vacancies, according to the Kansas State Board of Education. How do you kind of, as a representative, want to help this deficit of teachers, and how do we make the profession more appealing when they are leaving due to, you know, pay, the pandemic, political interference, mass school shootings, et cetera? Yeah, so there's a lot going on, obviously, right now in the classroom, right? And what's frustrating to me in the state house is that everyone knows that this is an issue, and yet, if you're a teacher in Kansas, you're obviously right now going to be paying attention to what is being said in the state house. You're looking at how are they funding schools, what are the policies being implemented that are going to impact me in my classroom, right? And when you turn on the TV or open the newspaper or log online to read a blog or the reflector, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you're seeing that you have people that are in positions of leadership who are questioning your compassion, questioning your dedication to a field that you studied so hard for mm-hmm. and that you are so focused on educating young people. And you have them basically questioning everything that you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's not a position of empowering people. That is micromanagement and and trying to make government so small that it can fit into the classroom to monitor your every single move. Uh, When you have legislators talking about dictating curriculum or saying that you can't say certain things or that you're quote unquote grooming children, um, of course you're going to look at 
what are my other options, right? I have several friends and two family members that have left teaching in the last five years. They said, I'm enough of it. One's a server, and she said, not only am I making more money, which is not the reason they went into teaching in the first place, but people say thank you more often. People are appreciative of what I'm doing. I don't have parents that are coming in and saying, well, I saw on the news that, you know, my state representative or this politician said this, and I want to make sure you're not teaching this. I want to see your curriculum. I want to see this. When it gets into that sort of depth of micromanagement, you no longer have the trust of, if you're a teacher, you're not going to feel like you have the trust of your school board or your state government. And that's not a, a position that I want to ever put people in. So what can we do? I, I think fully funding public education is important. Empowering our local school boards to make decisions to increase teacher pay is important. Um, I was really excited to see Representative Posking movement around her bill that would increase scholarship dollars for people who want to go into the teaching profession. Uh, she filed a bipartisan bill, had a very compelling argument to our House Appropriations Committee, and got one of the Republican members of the committee to implement it through a, a budget measure. And so I think little steps like that we can see hopefully start stemming the tide and start focusing on how do we get more people into the pipeline to go into teaching. Um, but as a point that's already been made by both of my colleagues here, when you have politicians that are saying mean things or hurtful things about someone or their profession, um, it's less likely that they're going to want to stay in that or go into that when they're very people that are supposed to be representing them and advocating for them in Topeka or their local school board are being attacked by um, extremists. And I would like to make the point, too, that while there are very specific issues to, to education in Kansas that, that Brandon alluded to, there's also a larger systemic issue, um, especially in jobs primarily done by women whose role is to take care of human capital. And so what I mean by that is um, child care providers, teachers certainly, nurses, elderly care providers. Um, there is huge turnover and shortages in, in all of those industries right now. And, and we as a state and we, have, we as a country have to really take a deep look at, at how we're valuing these people and their role that they play in society. So kind of by nature of, of jobs um, that are invested in human capital is that you can't really get more productive at it over time, right? Like, like teachers are amazing, but they're not like being better at teaching more kids, like we're seeing efficiencies in technology, right? Like, like nurses can't take care of more patients than they could a long time ago, right? Like, like it's... Uh, ideally one-to-one, -one, but, you know, there, there, there's obvious ratios that they have to take into account. Um, and But they're having to compete in salary and, and for a variety of different things um, with industries that that do get more productive and more efficient over time. There's an economic term for this called Baumol's cost disease. And so eventually at some point we as a country have to really take a deep look at this and, and see, you know, maybe the free market is not valuing these jobs um, properly, and then and maybe it's the role of government to, to, to help um, subsidize the, the, the role of it, because if the free market is not properly valuing them, and, and they're not, then, then we got to be able to, to, to keep people in these jobs, because our, our society is, does not function without these people. So I got an opportunity um, a couple weeks back to volunteer for a seventh grade classroom, and in the first 30 minutes, I was like, I'm good. <laughs> and I was like, thank goodness we have very passionate, compassionate, loving, caring teachers. 
um, who are helping the next generation. And to see their frustrations, um, you know, I my district goes to Baldwin City, and when I went and toured those schools, and that's a more rural setting than, than Lawrence of an urban setting, um, I got a tour by the special education teacher and who was telling me that, you know, special education is a little bit of a smaller program that they have to go to different schools and then just seeing how special education didn't get funded um, this session and for whatever reason that we could have. And there's just things, I, I, this might just be me as a freshman, I don't know why. And they make up excuses and they say economics, but everything we do, even with social service programs and SNAP and WIC, it's all at the expense of the child and the well-being and the safety and for them to be healthy. And even looking at the congressional level uh, with Senator Marshall saying, I will withhold um, my vote for lunch if it goes to trans children. That makes absolutely no sense to me. It's so frustrating that we're willing, they're willing to put the life and well-being of children while in the same breath saying that we want to protect the unborn. And I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, well, can we at least create policies for when the for the mother who's carrying the child, first of all, and then afterwards when the child's born? And it's just, it could be just me being naive and not knowing, you know, just, just don't understand why these are all happening. Um, I'm not in leadership position, so I'm not really in these loops of these more in-depth conversations, but... At the same time, it's just so extremely frustrating to see this. Um, and, you know, I really hope that my colleagues on the other side of the aisle and their voters will realize that we need to, you know, put politics and bickering aside and do what's right for the people. Um, and I would really like to see that. And, you know, I don't think making the Kansas legislature all Democrat is the perfect move. I mean, even in our own party, we have diversity. Um, which can be frustrating in itself. I'll, I'll take that option, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's yeah, um, you know, it's it's just it's just really interesting, and it, I feel bad when I go home and I say, you know, I did all I could. I'm sorry, I'm not on these education committees. Every time I see the bill, I vote yes, um, and then I go home now until session and say come come back empty-handed. And I'm trying to figure out how I can do better, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I'm like chipping away at a very big wall. Mm -hmm. So um, just trying to support my educators all the way from the sanitation workers um, who deserve these raises, who deserve these pay, um, and who are very stressed and stretched very, very thin from the pandemic. Um, but again, you know, we have like a substitute teacher shortage and um, that's something that I'm considering to take upon um, to make a couple um, in in income as well and also trying to volunteer in the classroom. And I do a lot of speaking to classrooms as well to empower the youth because they don't see what happens in the Capitol. They just read what's online. So any way I could support my educators, please feel free to reach out to me, um, even just Grabbing coffee and venting is always, <laughs> you know, a good, a good way as well. To yeah. Um, I think that kind of wraps up this podcast for today. Um, I just want to say thank you to Representative Shu, Representative Woodard, and Representative Haswood for joining me. 
And that is all.